Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Good afternoon. Today we present part two of our discussion on the AUA ASRM guidelines on male infertility. In part one, we spoke with Dr. Peter Schlegel about the evaluation aspects of the document. Today on the show, we speak with Dr. Mark Sigmund, who is Chief of Urology, Rhode Island Hospital, and the Miriam Hospital Co-Director of the Men's Health Clinic, Professor of Surgery and Urology at the Albert Medical School of Brown University. And we're talking about the treatment of male infertility that the document covers. Dr. Sigmund, welcome to ASRM Today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. So I want to jump right in here with you. So why the need for an update on the treatment of male infertility in 2020? The old guidelines, which are over a decade from the initial inception, covered a lot of areas. They were not uh, formulated using this, the current evidence-based approach to guidelines, which developed after that. Um, so these are really more evidence-based using the PICO format. In addition, there was felt a need to both update some of the recommendations and to include recommendations on topics that weren't addressed back in the original ones. In incorporating the PICO format and more evidence-based research, were there particular challenges in developing what you wanted to see or what the research was indicating? That, that is correct. That has remained a challenge, particularly in infertility, in that for many areas, there's not high quality evidence for treatment recommendations. But that's one of the reasons, because people will interpret things in all sorts of ways. So at least if the guidelines committee reviewed what available evidence presented and then makes a summary statement as to what they think the evidence can recommend, that would be a great benefit. In this collaboration between ASRM and AUA, can you sort of speak a little bit about any insight that that came about? Or was it a very smooth process? Because a lot of people might be unsure about how these particular documents and guidelines come together when there's joint cooperation. Sure. The joint cooperation went very, very smoothly. And part of that is because many of the people on the guidelines committee are members of both organizations and have interests in both anyways. In addition, uh, the ASRM has access to personnel, uh, such as someone from Resolve, that the AUA generally is not as much involved with. Uh, similarly, the AUA has people that can be involved that the ASRM may not routinely be involved with. So it really helped with a productive collaboration. It also allowed, because it was multidisciplinary in terms of the types of people uh, on the committee, it, it really allowed for some insights from other perspectives that maybe just a group of urologists would have come up with. Were there people that had been working on documents that you were looking to, re again, replace? You mentioned earlier that, you know, it's been almost a decade. Were there similar people? Were there new people coming in to work on this particular guideline? I, I think largely a lot of newer people. I was involved in the original ones, and I can't honestly remember who was involved beyond it was such a long time ago, but uh, I believe many of the people on this one uh, are new to this, to this guideline. For our practitioners and patients, of course, what are a few key takeaways or considerations that you would like them to know that they can find in this guideline? I think one of the most valuable is in some of the areas where there remains controversy. 
And it's difficult for many practitioners to keep up on the literature. And one of the benefits is this is very much literature based, even if the conclusion is we can't make a definitive recommendation. By reading this, you'll know what data supports one view or the other view and to allow you to make individual recommendations to patients. Many of the topics in the guidelines are similar to the old guidelines, and many of them haven't changed substantially, but this really filled them out. The, the other, I think, difference is the old guidelines or best practices were four separate documents, and this is now one document. It is a large document, which is why it's published in two parts, but it's one place where everything is covered, and that's substantially different from the old ones. And I'd like to point our audience to our show notes section where there should be a link to this particular guideline for everyone to review. Dr. Sigmund, I appreciate your time today. I just want to wrap up a little bit here with you and ask, is there anything else that you would like the listeners to know about this guideline in regards to treatment of male infertility? There are several areas that we covered this time that weren't addressed in the initial ones and some clarifications on certain topics. For example, um, this is not a treatment, but it leads to a treatment. Many urologists, most of us were taught, you see a right-sided varicocele, you need to get abdominal imaging because the patient may have a right-sided renal or adrenal tumor. And that results in a lot of ultrasounds or CAT scans on people who have right-sided varicoceles, when in fact it's extraordinarily rare so one of the guideline statements addresses that recommending against routine testing for right-sided isolated varicoceles unless they're large or uh, new and onset or non-reducible, which would be a much smaller group of patients and hopefully save some health resources. Other areas uh, that are really new compared to what we were doing back then, such as do you fix varicoceles and azospermic patients in the hopes that you will then have enough sperm in the semen so you don't need to go to testicular sperm extraction? And that was addressed in, in statement number 27, recommending against that because in most of the time, it in fact doesn't stop one from needing a sperm extraction. Other areas that weren't addressed in the initial guidelines had to do with nutraceuticals and vitamins. And uh, anybody who's on the internet can see that there's lots of advertisements for antioxidants. There's been lots of publications on antioxidants. Unfortunately, not high quality publications showing that their use improves birth rates. Uh, and that's, that's a challenge for our specialty, getting that kind of data. But they made recommendations based on what data is out there. For example, that patients should be aware that the data on supplements is really questionable in terms of concluding it has a utility and that we can't make definitive recommendations because there isn't enough data suggesting that they clearly improve pregnancy rates and live birth rates. So those are some examples. Um, lastly, one topic, and I think it's a very important one, has to do with fertility preservation, which we didn't really address in the earlier documents, but that's clearly a significant area that, that was missed then, and that's addressed with uh, about six statements in the, in the current document about when to recommend fertility preservation, um, how long to wait after somebody's had gonadotoxic therapy, and those topics are all addressed here with, with good discussion uh, to fill out the information. Is there anything else that you think that you'd like to cover with us? 
I think the only other area that is important is putting these guidelines together was a large task. Part of the challenge, as I've mentioned, is the low quality of much of the data. So for those on the research end of things, this really should be a wake-up call. We need to improve some of the research that we're putting out to try to answer some of these questions. And there is a section in the, in the document looking towards the future and what we need. And I think that's very important to try to change many of the statements from expert opinion to standard evidence-based guidelines. I've been speaking today with Dr. Mark Sigmund, who is Chief of Urology, Rhode Island Hospital and the Miriam Hospital, Co-Director of the Men's Health Clinic, Professor of Surgery and Urology at the Albert Medical School of Brown University. Dr. Sigmund, thank you so much for being able to take time out to be with us today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.